0: Thank you, Danielle, for that. I appreciate it. Everyone else is scared to speak back to me. That's good. Um, we're glad that you are here with us this morning. Um, today's a, an awesome day in the life of our church. One of the things we're going to do before I before I begin preaching... Uh, my name is Jack, by the way, I'm one of the elders here. Uh, Fud, who's our main teaching pastor, is out of town today, so I am preaching with you. I'm preaching not with you, because you're not preaching. I'm preaching This is going to be a long day. Um, If you want to go ahead and open your Bible to the book of Acts, chapter 5, we're going to be in the book of Acts, chapter 5. A couple things before we get into the sermon. Uh, The first is, for the past three weeks, we have been reminding you and letting you know that um, we believe the Lord has raised up a man in our church to come alongside Fudd and myself to be a a fellow elder, Uh, so he will have the same really same position and authority that uh, Fudd and I do within the church. Uh, Joe and his wife Jess and their four kids have been here at our church for a while. Uh, Fudd and I have spent many, many months with him, talking with him, um, praying with him, asking the Lord if we feel this might be the right thing. And we, we feel that it is. And so about three weeks ago, we put it before the church. ...that we believe God was raising Joe up for this position. And so this is the Sunday in which we're asking you if you are a member of Remedy. So if you're not a member, you can just kind of be on the outside looking in right now. Um, But if you are a member of Remedy, what we're asking you to do right now is if you would, right under your chair... um, ...there's a small piece of paper that's, for lack of a better term, a ballot. Um, So if you would, at this point in time, pull that out... um, And let us know whether or not you affirm Joe Mueller being um, ordained as an elder here in Remedy. Uh, We gave three weeks, put information on the city, anything that was out there. Um, No one raised anything that we, um, there were no issues raised about Joe at all. So there weren't even small issues that were raised that we had to address. There were no issues raised. Uh, So in the three weeks, nobody has brought anything to our attention as to his disqualifications for being an elder. And so what we're asking you to do right now is if you would pull that out, if you're a member, um, make your vote. And if you would, you fold those in half and pull and pass those into the inner part of the aisle. Um, our guys who collect the offering are going to come right now and they're going to collect those. So, Andres and Adam, if you guys could come um, at this point in time, they're going to be passed down to the middle. We're going to go ahead and do that. We decided we want to go ahead and do that as its own part of the service instead of waiting to the offering time. Uh, We want to go ahead and and collect those now. So as they're walking down, um, if you forget to do it, even though I've just talked about it for three minutes, uh, you can always put it in the offering plate, um, but there you go. Next thing before we get into the sermon, I, I felt this week a need to address just the horrors and the difficulty of what's going on in our nation right now. Um, I am sure that all of you have been aware of the, the shootings and the death and the evil that has happened in our country over this past week. And it is not something that we as believers stand by and look at and do not weep about. From what happened in Baton Rouge and Minneapolis and Dallas, This is not something that God is indifferent to. Lives have been taken for the wrong reasons. I just got through reading a book about Baptists in America, and one of the things that made me want to weep is that during the Civil Rights Movement, Baptist pastors were silent. We cannot be silent about the sin of racism. Racism is real. And it has no place in the life of a believer. God in his glorious sovereign wisdom has created people of every nation, race, tribe, and tongue. And for any one of those groups to think they are superior in any way to any other group demonstrates a sinful pride that is antagonistic to the gospel. And as a gospel people... We have to stand and say that there's no one who is better than anyone else simply because their skin is a different color. And I wanna publicly say that we need to pray for the men and women who every day put on a uniform and walk out of their homes leaving their families because they care about other people and because they wanna protect and care for you and for me and they even want to protect and care for people who are demonstrating against them. We have men in this church who have had wonderful conversations, who are police officers here in Rock Hill, who talk to me about how when they are doing their job, they do it through a lens of the gospel. That people that they interact with who may have committed serious crimes... They're wondering, how would Jesus love this person? How would Jesus serve this person? And so what I want to do right now is I want to stop. And as a church, I want us to pray. I want us to pray for those who feel the pain of racism. And for those who may be sinfully racist. I want to pray for the police officers, not only here in Rock Hill, but across this country who right now are feeling that by trying to protect others, they're putting their lives at open risk. And I want to pray more than anything that the church in America will rise up and be the answer. So let's stop right now and pray. Father, our hearts are heavy. And Lord, we don't live in the 1960s. But God, we would be naive to say that our country has healed from the deep wounds of racism. We know that there are many people who are discriminated against simply because their color of their skin is different. And Lord, if there are times and places, first and foremost, where that is evident in the church, we repent. And we don't want our repentance to be hollow. So we pray that as a gospel people, that you would make us agents on the forefront, crying out for those who cannot cry out for themselves and not perpetuating an evil, sinful thing. Pray for families who have lost people right now. God, families who are this morning mourning so many lives. God, it causes us to cry out, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Would you come and put an end to all of this? I pray for families who are mourning with no sense of hope because they don't know the gospel. I pray that even in the midst of tragedy, you would bring them the hope of Christ. Christ. I pray for African American brothers and sisters. I pray that you would bring healing and hope to them. And Father, I pray for men that I count as my friends who serve in our police department right here in Rock Hill. The police departments all across this country. I pray for their safety pray for their compassion. I pray for wisdom. And we pray, Lord, that you would bring healing to our country. We pray that you would bring healing. And we know that the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. So we pray that we as a people would be bold with the gospel. We know that the hope of Christ is the only hope that we have. So, Father... In all of this, we pray that in the days to come, that you would stop this evil, and that you would bring hope and healing, and that you would even use us to be agents of that. We love you, and we ask this in Christ's name, amen. There's no easy way to transition from that into a sermon, so I'm just going to do it. So, Acts chapter 5, we are in a series about the early church where we are looking at what has been done from the beginning of when Christ has risen from the dead, ascended back into heaven, and the church has begun. The church has come together and it is growing. The apostles are are teaching, people are coming to faith in Jesus, and the church, and you often hear it referred to as the early church, the church is beginning and it is flourishing. And it is not doing so in the midst of no opposition, but it's actually doing so in the midst of opposition from the same people who crucified Christ are now coming against the apostles. But God in his goodness and his sovereignty is causing the church really to explode and go crazy. Last week, Fudd preached on a, an extremely difficult topic. He preached on Acts chapter 5, the beginning of it. Now, if you're familiar with Acts chapter 5, it's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. So if you weren't here, let me give you a back, uh, the back up just a little bit if you're not familiar with the story. Ananias and Sapphira, there was a guy named Barnabas who sold a field and he got all the money and he brought it to the apostles and says, I just tell ta- you, I've sold all this and I'm giving all the money so that you guys can use it to feed the poor and do whatever needs to be done. Well, Ananias and Sapphira, they see this and they think, man, that was pretty awesome. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to sell this field and we're just going to bring some of the money, but we're going to try to make it look like we brought all the money. And then everybody's going to look and think we're as awesome as Barnabas is and things will be great. So Ananias doesn't, he brought it in. Peter says, is that really all the money? Yeah, it's all the money, man. I'm sorry for you. And he dies. That's kind of a paraphrase. Because he asked, why, why did, what caused you to lie to the Holy Spirit? What caused you to lie to God? And God takes Ananias at that point in time. The young men come, they carry him out, and they bury him. And then his wife walks in. A few hours later, Peter asks her the same question. She lies again, and the same thing happens. And immediately at the end, what we see in Acts 5.11 A a statement that really doesn't need to be made, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who had heard these things. It was crazy. Can you imagine being there and hearing about this? These people lied, and God just took them out. It was an intense situation. That is what's happened right before what we get into today. I want to give you that background. I'm going to kind of refer back to it. So I didn't want to just assume that you knew what went on earlier in Acts chapter 5. Because what we're going to talk about in the middle part of Acts chapter 5, where we're going to be, is going to refer back to that a few times. So I wanted to give you that background. So let's read together Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 32. Acts 5, verses 12 through 32. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the Senate of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, if you've you've been here with us as we've been working through the book of Acts, you may notice that this scene in Acts chapter 5 is extremely familiar because almost exactly the same thing happens in Acts chapter 4. If you remember, Peter and John are walking towards the temple. They see a guy who is lame. They say, silver and gold we don't have, but what we do have we give to you. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And the guy gets up and walk, and he's praising God, and they walk into the temple. And what happens? The Sadducees see it. They don't like it. They grab Peter and John. They put them in prison. Then they go and pull them out of prison and say, don't ever teach in this name anymore. Peter and John say, we're going to listen to God and not listen to you. Then they kick them out. Almost the exact same thing that happens here. So my thought was that I could just preach Fudd's sermon from Acts chapter 4 and everything can, it would just be okay. He'd already preached it, but I'm not going to do that this morning because I think there's something else that I want to draw out of this passage that I think stands out from what God has put here. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to pull out three observations from this passage about, about obedience and restoration, Those are the things that I think God is is bringing out for us this morning to see and to follow. So the first thing that I want to talk about is that miracles give evidence of God's restoration. Miracles give evidence of God's restoration. So we remember that this is connected to the story of Ananias and Sapphira. We would all say that that was a miraculous act of God. God took the two of them out by his own wisdom and by his own sovereignty And he did it so that the people would see what he was doing. And then after this, we see that many signs and wonders are being done by the apostles. Now, we remember that as the book of Acts is being written by Luke, he's not writing the chapter divisions and the verse divisions. So it's not as though Luke has said, these things are separate. They're dovetailing right into each other. So we've got this miraculous event of Ananias and Sapphira, And now we move into the event of the many signs and wonders were done regularly among the people. So there's a connection. Luke sees that what happened with Ananias and Sapphira is a sign and wonder of what God is doing. And now he's saying, and there was even more that was done. Not just people being killed, but people being restored, people being healed, people being made clean. And what happens is almost every time we see a miracle in the book of Acts, there is a transition then to someone speaking the truth of the gospel. These miracles weren't an end unto themselves. They were demonstrating what the apostles were saying was true. They were saying God in eternity knew that the people would rebel from him, but he was going to send a redeemer. And all throughout the Old Testament, there was this promise of the one who was coming, the one who would restore all things. And so they're proclaiming, Jesus is this one. His death has brought the way so that we can be brought near to God and God is coming and he is restoring all things. And as they're proclaiming this, These signs and wonders are giving evidence that what they're saying is true. So God is coming and he has wiped out sin and he is making us a holy people. And Ananias and Sapphira step up in the middle of the church wanting to willingly live in their sin. And God demonstrates that he's not tolerating sin in his people. He is restoring us to a sense of holiness. And so they're taking out and the people see it and they understand what is happening. They are unholy and God has removed them to demonstrate to us that we are to be a holy people. But God is not just doing that. He's not just coming in judgment upon sin, but he's poured out judgment on Christ and because of what Christ has done, he has purchased healing and he is making us new and he is making us whole. And now these people who are full of unclean spirits and all of these ailments are coming and they are being healed. And everybody who's in the crowd is standing there. They're hearing about this. They're watching this. They're seeing this. And what they're understanding is that every time these apostles are continually not just having these things happen and then sitting back and saying, man, isn't it awesome somebody got healed. Somebody gets healed and they stand up. This man was healed in the name of Jesus who died on the cross for your sins. Now repent and turn to him that you might be healed spiritually and brought near to him. All of these miracles are done in such a way to point people to hear the words of the gospel that they might believe. Notice that they're not called seers in verse 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. All of what God is doing here is he's cultivating within people a response of faith to the words of the gospel. Now, on just a side note Luke makes this point that people are coming and laying people in the streets so that Peter's shadow can fall on them. We don't see anywhere that Peter's commanding this. We don't see anywhere that Peter says, you know what, I can't talk to all of you guys, so here's what I want you to do. I'm going to walk down the street in the middle of the day. It's going to be about 3 o'clock, so the shadow's going to be falling this way. Line everybody up right through here. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to walk on down. Shadow of Passover, every one of you is going to be awesome. Because I'm Peter and that's my shadow. (laughs) It's not what Peter's doing. What we see, I think, rather is a demonstration of the people are understanding that something is happening with these men, but a lack of understanding of what it's really all about. They think it's about Peter. They think it's about being in his presence. This is all about Peter. If I can get near to Peter, so I just want to get his shadow to fall on me. And we see over and over, Peter and John and the apostles are saying, it's not about me. It's not about my shadow. I'm not the one doing this. God is the one doing this. The one who raised Jesus from the dead is the one who is doing this. So we see this, and this is not a lifting up of Peter as if this is what they had to do. I think what this does is shows us that the people were hungry for this, but they didn't understand it. They didn't get it, what it was really all about. Now, Oftentimes, we forget that we serve the same God today that is the God of the book of Acts. We all of us feel like God did things like that then. He doesn't do miracles today. You know what? A lot of times we don't see the same kind of miracles. We don't see that. I think sometimes we do, but we just attribute it to science or doctors or luck I think God's still working and moving in the lives of people. I think God still heals people in a lot of ways, and we don't often recognize. I mean, just think about it. When a doctor performs surgery, they are literally cutting a body open and then putting it back together. We say, man, the surgeons was great. Who's ultimately in control of that? God is. And so sometimes we don't see this. And I'll I'll tell you, I've been places in the world where the, the gospel is pushing through to darkness in the very first places. And there are stories of these same kinds of things that we see in the book of Acts happening there. I believe we serve the same God who's doing the same thing. But can I tell you something? Every time somebody becomes a Christian, a genuine believer, a genuine follower of Christ, a miracle takes place miracle takes place and i'm not overstating that i'm not over spiritualizing that i'm not saying that so i can make my point ephesians 2 and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked but god made us alive together in christ do you understand that when you share the gospel you are asking god to perform a miracle it's the equivalent of standing next to a grave and saying, "God, will you bring this person up out of this grave and give them life?" That's what we're doing. And so many times when somebody comes to faith in Christ, we look at us, like, "Oh man, yeah, that's awesome." Yeah. A miracle has taken place. They were dead, dead. And because they're walking around and talking, we think, oh yeah, they were spiritually dead. No, to be spiritually dead is to be worse than physically dead. And they weren't just bad and got better. They were dead and now they're alive. And the reason why I'm stressing this, the reason why I'm really wanting to push in on this is sometimes we look at the book of Acts, we're like, man, God did all those miracles back then. And we don't recognize that God is in the miracle business right now in the lives of people. And God wants to be in the miracle business of the lives of people who live near us and around us. And that he brings us in contact with. And just like he used the apostles to bring about signs and wonders. He wants to use us to speak the truth of the gospel. Where he will come in and raise people miraculously to life right in front of our eyes. This is the same God, the same message of the gospel that the apostles were preaching then is the message of the gospel that we are preaching now. And God raises people to life now by the words of the gospel. We have got to be a people who understand miracles happen now and God allows us to be a part of that. Now, one of the things we have to understand is that miracles don't just end in another self. They drive us deeper. So we see this working. And that leads us to our next point. Those who've been restored, so this restoration that's happened, this God is making things new. He's making dead things alive. This restoration that comes through trusting the gospel, those who've been restored are obedient. Here's what I mean by that. When we look at this passage, when we look at this twelve through thirty-two. There's really three groups of people that we see. Okay, we have the people. Now, the people are the crowd. They're not the apostles. They're not believers. They're not the Sadducees and, and the royal elites of the religious movement. They're the crowds, everyday run-of-the-mill people who are on the outside looking in. We have the crowds. We have the Sadducees, they're the ones who are opposed to the gospel, they're opposed to Christ, they had a hand in the execution of Jesus, they're the Sadducees, and then you have the apostles slash believers, I'm putting that group together, you've got the apostles and those who believe. And one of the things that's different about these groups when we look at them is their obedience to the commands of Christ. Notice what it says in verse 13. It says, none of the rest dared join them. Now that that passage is is awkward, it's weird. And when you read it, 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 who are the rest? What does it mean? And as I've been studying this and looking at the context, what it seems is that the people are the rest. None of the rest joined them, but the people held them in high esteem. So the people are standing back. They're they're looking at the apostles. They're thinking, man, those guys are awesome. They're like healing people. They're talking about this Jesus guy. Man, they're pretty great, but I'm not gonna have anything to really do with them. Like, it's kind of cool that they believe that. And there's some things about them. I think they're really important, good people, but I don't know that I'm down with everything that they're saying. So they didn't hear, they heard the words, but they did not obey. And then you've got the Sadducees. They're actually telling the apostles not to teach. They're telling the apostles not to proclaim. They're telling the, the apostles, don't speak the words of Jesus. Don't speak the truth of Christ. They're not obeying either. And yet the apostles speak twice of obedience. Look again in verses 29 through 32. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. And then look in verse 32, kind of bookending it. And we are witnesses to these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. The apostles are pulling a stark contrast out They are ones who are obeying God. Now they're not doing this to lift themselves up and say, we're obedient you're not. What they're doing is they're pulling this out and they're recognizing that they are striving to obey God. One of the things that we see is that Jesus is not only Savior, but according to the ESV translation, the God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by raising on a tree and God exalted him as right hand as leader and savior. Some of your translations may say prince and savior. The idea there is the same. He is our royal sovereign who's in charge of our lives. The thing that is different about the apostles and slash believers and the other groups is that the people heard some things about Jesus and kind of admired him. They heard some things the apostles said and kind of admired him. But Jesus wasn't in charge of their life. The Sadducees wanted to stop everything because Jesus wasn't in charge of their life. And the apostles and believers would stand out and risk their lives because Jesus was in charge of their life. They were in prison. They were shut down. The angel comes and open and says, all right, guys, what I need you to do. In the morning, God says, go back up to the temple, the same place where you were arrested, the same place where you've been told not to do this, the same place where you've been beaten, the same place where everything's difficult. You need to go back there in the morning and just keep on teaching so imagine you're the apostles. You've been put in jail multiple times. The people who executed Jesus are the same ones who have put you in jail and have warned you multiple times not to do this. You have a choice. Obey or disobey. So what did they do? They got there early in the morning. They didn't like sneak in. Like they got there early. Like the Sadducees are like still drinking coffee and reading the paper. They're not even made it to the trial yet. They get to the trial and Peter and John, and they've been preaching for hours. They've been up there already just telling everybody about Jesus. Man, God loves you. He has sent Christ to die for you. He wants to bring you back. They're opening up the Old Testament scriptures and showing them how Christ fulfills everything. They're pleading with people to come to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is their prince, He's their leader, He's their Savior. He has purchased their life. Their lives are him. Their lives are his. And so what do they do? We're gonna obey him more than anybody else. You know, Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Notice the similarity between that and Acts 5.32. And we are witnesses to these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Love and obedience are empowered by the Spirit. The giving of the Spirit by the Father is not because they were obedient. Ephesians 1.13, in Him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit doesn't come because we obey, yet what the Holy Spirit does is move in us to obey. So the evidence that they had the Holy Spirit was the fact that they were being obedient. The Holy Spirit was the one who empowered them to stand up when there was fear of their very life at stake. They were obedient because the Spirit was working in them. I think that it's fair to say we need to stop here for a second and ask ourselves a question. If we are given the Spirit, we place our faith in Christ. And the Spirit empowers obedience in our life. We need to stop and ask one question. Does our life exhibit a trend towards obedience in Jesus? Is that the trajectory of our life? Now, I'm not asking, are you perfect? I'm not asking, do you never fail? I'm not asking, do you struggle with sin and hate sin, but it kind of wins sometimes, but you're still fighting against it. That's not what I'm asking. What I'm asking is, does your life reflect a desire to be obedient to Jesus? The danger is we can be like the people who hold the teachings of Jesus in high esteem, but they're not central to our lives, And in our church culture, it's easy to be around a bunch of people who are Christians and think we are Christians. But if we examine our lives, it's not geared towards obedience in Christ. And if that's the case, if that's you're looking at your life and you're saying, my life doesn't look like obedience. I really, I think back on, I haven't cared anything about the obedience. I just go to church. I just do this. I'm not worried about obedience. Can I tell you, if that's the case and you examine your life and you see it this morning, God has not brought you here to heap tons of coals upon you he's brought you here to bring you to repentance and in his goodness he points this out to say look i'm giving you evidence i'm giving you evidence turn from that and turn to me So we have to examine our lives. We have to see, is this a trend in our life? And if it's not, we have to understand the danger that that trend would expose. And we have to say, do I need to repent and turn? My desire is not to cause anyone to doubt their salvation, but my desire is not to let anyone continue on in disobedience because they don't have the spirit. So I say we must examine our lives and see, It's the Spirit leading us to obedience. Third thing we see in this chapter that I think we need to look at is that fear fights obedience. I don't know if you noticed it, but both the people and the Sadducees were fearful. The people were fearful of joining the apostles because they were afraid of what the Sadducees would do to them. They'd seen what had happened with Jesus. They'd seen what happened when the apostles get put in jail. So they held them in high esteem, but they would not join them because they were afraid of the Sadducees. The interesting thing is that the Sadducees <laughs> wouldn't bring Peter to John forcefully in front of them. Why? Because they were afraid of the people. So like these groups are afraid of each other and they don't even realize it. But notice that in both of them, this fear is what's driving them in their disobedience. So what we see here is the people have heard this message about the gospel, but they're afraid of everything else so they won't join the believers. The Sadducees are so afraid of everything that's going on that they're not even thinking about being obedient. Only the apostles are the ones who are without fear. So what we find is that when people are feared above God, we won't obey God. If we fear people more than we fear God, we will not obey them, obey him. In fact, it's gonna fight against our obedience. There's other types of fear that fight against our obedience. For some, it's the fear of missing out. What I mean by that is I would obey Jesus, but I won't get the full college experience. I would obey Jesus, but what about all the dreams that I had? I would obey Jesus, but it's gonna cost me. I would obey Jesus, but I'm afraid that I won't have X, Y, and Z. I would obey Jesus, but I'm afraid he's going to ask me to do something that's uncomfortable. I would obey Jesus, but I'm just afraid that that's going to mean changes. I would, and you fill in the blank. We fear that we're going to miss out on something. And so what we do is trade something worthless for that which we could have, which was absolutely amazing. Sometimes it's the fear of losing control. We fear of losing the control of our life, control of our power, control of our position, control of the way we other people look at us. Sometimes it's the fear of mistrust. If I do this, will it really work out? If I obey God's word, it seems like others are gonna take advantage of me. If I obey God's word, it seems like my life would be harder. If I obey God's word, it seems like things are just not gonna, it seems like I'm just gonna miss out in life. We don't want the fears to be what drives our lives. We want to be obedient, just like the apostles. Later on in the chapter, if I going to talk about this next week, later on in chapter 5, they were beaten, and they walk out praising God, joyful that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. The thought of that is so heavy upon me because so many times I don't want to be obedient because of how difficult it might be or how uncomfortable it might be or why it might, what it might cost me a little bit. And the apostles walked out joyful that they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ. Let us not let fear push us from being obedient. So then the question I have then is how do we fight for obedience? How do we do this? So, so the, the danger is to talk about this. We need to be obedient. We need to be obedient. We need to be obedient. To sit and say, okay, I hear you. I'm just struggling with this. This doesn't come natural. The sin inside of me fights fights against obedience. It makes me lean towards disobedience. And for every one of us who will be honest with ourselves, we all struggle with obedience. There may be areas where we find it naturally easy to obey. There may be some things that we don't deal with. Or maybe our personality is wired a certain way. And so, man, we can obey that easy. But across the board... All the way full and total obedience. If we're all would we'll just be lay ourselves bare, we will say, Yes, I have a very hard time being obedient here, 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 and here, and I don't know what to do about it. My hope this morning is that I can, from God's word, give you some tools. So that as you say, I want to live a life that's obedience to Christ. I hear what you're saying. I love Jesus. I want to keep his commands. I want to walk alongside you and encourage you and say, let us be an obedient people. Here's some ways to help you do that. So six things I want to bring out. First is this. You have to know the commands if you're going to follow them. You have to know the commands if you're going to follow them. One of the reasons why some people have a problem being obedient is they don't know what Jesus commands. They know the basics, but they don't know what it is. Psalm one nineteen nine through 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commands. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It almost sounds like a trite answer, like a you gotta say this kind of thing. But we have to be a people who are seeking diligently the word of God. God has spoken to us. He has shown us what he desires. He has shown us those things which are evil and those things which are good. He has shown us what a follower looks like and he has given that to us in his word. And if we are satisfied with only a few minutes a week, somebody talking to us about it, we will not find ourselves genuinely, passionately pursuing obedience. How do you fight against disobedience? How do you fight against sin? Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. It all begins with us knowing what God's Word is and then sinking it deep down into our heart. And so the easy answer of make sure you're reading your Bible is also probably one of the most difficult for a lot of us. We've got to be in the Word. We've got to make a plan. It's not enough to know we should be reading the Bible. We have to be doing it. And I would just say, for many people, that's just that's the hard thing. They don't know how, they don't know when, they don't know where to start, they don't know what to do. I will just tell you, if that's you right now, and you're sitting there and you're feeling kind of this weight of, I know I need to be doing that, I just don't know what to start, I don't know what to do, I don't know how to do that. I just want to tell you, look, come find me afterwards. I'll give you an idea. We'll start out easy. Find somebody you know who has a regular time in God's word. Find a friend, find somebody in your community group, somebody who's around you that you know loves the word and is in the word and just walk up to them and risk putting yourself out there and say, hey, look, I'm really struggling with this right now. I really don't have this passion, but I sense that in you. Can you help me learn how to walk through this? And trust God's grace that he will do that. It really leads into the second point. Obedience is a group project. Now, all my college students are groaning when I say group projects because they all hate group projects. Here's what I mean, Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Watch out on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You cannot bear one another's burdens if people don't know what your burdens are. And you can't help bear someone's burdens if you don't know what their burdens are. If we are gonna fulfill the law of Christ of helping to bear one another's burdens, and I think in this, part of this is the spiritual burden because 6-1, if anyone's caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch that you don't be tempted. Bear one another's burdens. This is all connected. It's all part of the same idea. And so the idea here is we were never meant to go at it alone. And some of us, either because we're fearful or we're prideful or we just don't know how to do it or we're worried about what other people will think, we won't ask somebody to walk with us and bear our burdens. Can I tell you, the burden of disobedience is heavy and God in his goodness and his grace towards us has brought other people around us. God has said, you can't handle this alone. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna put you in a church with people who love me and who are just as broken as you are, but that I'm working in their life, and they're going to walk alongside you. And when it's really heavy for you, they're going to help hold it up. And then their burden's going to get really heavy, and you're going to help hold it up. And the difficulty of obedience, they're going to they're walk with you. They're going to ask you questions. They're going to speak my word to you. They're going to encourage you, and they're going to rebuke you when you're wrong so that you can really walk together and follow Christ. You see, so many times a day we think something like church membership or being really involved with people and open and vulnerable. Well, that's just something for the really spiritual. That's something of a bygone day. Can I tell you this is God's idea? So, if you're here at Remedy and you're just kind of you're you're here and you come on Sunday mornings, man, that's awesome. I am so glad. Can I tell you something? Push in deeper. Push in deeper walk in to that group, that community, that that people who will walk with you, who will love you and care about you. And they will help bear your burdens and you can help bear their burdens. And so we as a church will fulfill the law of Christ. Third thing is this, admiration of the obedient is not obedience. Obedience. Continue on in Galatians six. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. It's interesting that's Galatians six three through five it comes right after one and two, where we're told to bear one another's burdens. Then we're also told we got to bear our own burden. Here's part of what's going on here. I think today, especially in our Christian subculture, we can get so enamored with people who are the quote-unquote Christian celebrities. We can read all of their books. We can quote what they have to say. We can be so enamored, whether it's an author, a pastor, a friend, or whatever, and we can so admire them that it almost feels like their obedience rubs off on us. And what we should do is see their obedience and allow it to push us towards Jesus. Jesus. It's not enough just to be around people who are being obedient. We have to pursue obedience as well. So if you're a reader and you love to read and you have a favorite theologian, that theologian's obedience is not your obedience. If you are heavily involved in a community group and your community group leader is someone to you who just pictures obedience, their obedience is not your obedience. We as a people have to strive for our own obedience. Yes, it is a group project. We walk with each other, but never let the admiration of someone else become enough for us. The God they serve, the God they are obedient to, the one they are loving with all of their heart is calling you to love and be obedient and care and pursue with the same vigor, the same passion that they have. Let us not let admiration be the end goal. Fourth thing is this. Obedience is learned through obedience. I read a quote this week by a guy named John Owen. And John Owen is hard to understand. So I'm going to try to put this out there. Brief quote. I think it's a little self-explanatory. He says this. The true notion of holy evangelical truths will not live, at least not flourish, where they are divided from a holy life. As we learn all to practice, so we learn much by practice. And what he means is, it's not enough for us to know things. Knowing facts don't automatically produce obedience. So that's when he says, as we learn all to practice, all the things we should do, so we learn much by practice. When we see something, when we learn something, it's then that we say, God, by the power of your spirit, which we'll talk about in just a second, I want to put this in practice, this summer i've been reading through the sermon on the mount so i've been taking just like one verse each day so blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled that's what jesus said so i just stopped and i pray god where am i hungering and thirsting for things that are not righteousness where am i hungering am i hungering and thirsting for righteousness and as I was praying about that, God started welling some things up in my hearts, and bringing some things to mind where I was being disobedient. Now, me sitting there and saying, man, I'm being disobedient in that. God just make me obedient. God just made me obedient. You know where I learn obedience? By God raising those things up. And then when they happen again, fighting against it. And a lot of times in the Christian world, we, we talk about struggling with sin, That's oftentimes code word for, I give in to this temptation a lot. Do, are we really struggling? A struggle is a fight. A struggle is I'm trying to murder this before it murders me. And so what we want to say is obedience isn't learned just by knowing the truth. Obedience is learned by being obedient. Know it and then do it. Fifth thing is this. Cling tightly to the Holy Spirit. Romans eight thirteen. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. This is the hope of all of this. You are not left, Christian, to do this by pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. You're not. You don't have to do this in your own power. You feel weak. You are weak. But the Spirit is strong. God has given His Spirit to us. And that which He requires from us, He will work in us both to will and to do it he is stronger than we are Christ has defeated sin on the cross and the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the spirit that raised us from the dead and now dwells in us and will cause us both to will and to do his good pleasure man there's hope in that there's hope in obedience we can be obedient Not because we're good and awesome, but because he is good and awesome. He has defeated sin and now he is defeating sin in us. We can be obedient because we serve a good and wonderful and holy God who hates our sin and has provided the means for us to murder it so that we can be the holy people that he's called us to be. So as we're looking at this and you are feeling like, I can't do this. I've been defeated. I can never overcome. Let me tell you, you can't, but Christ can. So if you are a Christian, cling, cling, cling to the Holy Spirit. Pray, trust, and then be obedient. And the best thing that goes on top of that is part six. Let the hope of grace propel you into wholehearted obedience. You know what that means? You can rely on the Spirit. You can trust and you can fight, fight, fight for obedience. And every time you fail, Jesus said, I've already paid for that. Now get up and keep going. You're not a failure in my sight. I've already paid for that. Now get up and be obedient. And you can fail 7,000 times and stand up knowing, God, I failed, but I want to pursue obedience and know he loves you no less. Knew about all of it on the cross and says, if you love me, keep my commands. Your mind, your failure has not separated you from me. Don't be happy in your sin. Don't, want, don't rest in it, but continue pursuing in obedience. That's the hope of the gospel. And if you're here this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus, your life has not been changed by the gospel, and you think Christianity is all about doing better and becoming a better person and being a nicer person, can I tell you this morning, the message of Christianity is you are broke, you are messed up, and there's nothing you can do to become a better person. And God loves you in spite of all of that and will forgive you and bring you into his family, and then he will make you just like Jesus. And we are a bunch of broken, messed up people who need Jesus every minute of every single day. So if you're a follower of Christ this morning, let me ask you, is your life demonstrating obedience? Right now, is the Spirit pushing on you some way where you've been disobedient in your life? Maybe this is time to confess that and just say, Lord, I recognize I've been disobedient in this and I need you Holy Spirit to empower me to fight against this to want to fight against it and then to actually fight against it and maybe you hear this morning for the first time and you understand that the hope of the gospel is not do better, but that Christ has already done on your behalf and Christ is calling you to turn from your sin and trust in what Christ did on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, showing he had defeated sin, hell, and death on your behalf and trust that so that you can follow in him. Maybe that's what Christ is calling you to do today. We're gonna have a time to respond and we're not gonna kind of respond down. We're gonna respond rejoicing, and our great and wonderful God who has done this. So I wanna pray with you and then ask you to join with us as we sing and respond to the word of God. Lord, you have loved us with an unrelenting love and you continue to love us with an unrelenting love in the midst of our failures, in the midst of our weaknesses, in the times when we don't wanna obey and the times when we are obeying steadfastly Lord I pray for us as a church that we would be people who are obedient because you have redeemed us that the freedom of stepping away of trying to earn our goodness or be good enough would free us for radical obedience in you the joy of knowing that you love us in spite of our failures, even through our failures, is overwhelmingly good. Lord, I pray for anyone who is here today who feels the weight of their sin, who knows they are separated from you. I pray Holy Spirit that you would open their eyes and grant them faith to trust in this hope of the gospel that they would not be like the crowd who stood on the outside looking in, afraid to step up, but that you would grant them faith and the strength to step up to someone who is a believer and say, I have received Christ. I have trusted the gospel. So Lord, we pray that your word would move powerfully in us. We love you and we ask you in Christ. name.